Welcome into the 48 Days Podcast. Dan Miller here. Hey, today our question is, should my kids be entrepreneurs? Now, you know, in today's wild workplace, your kids may have already seen your disappointment in having a traditional job, or maybe they've experienced their own frustration, you know, at making $18 an hour and still not being able to afford a car and an apartment. Is it risky to encourage them to do something more creative without the guarantees and security of a real job? I mean, how do you teach them to be responsible? What if all they have are creative skills that are really tough to turn into income? Well, hey, we're going to walk you through a listener question and then lay out a plan for helping your kids see the best options. And if you're the parent having these same questions yourself, today's your lucky day. We're going to walk through how to test yourself and any idea you want to create the work and the life you want starting today. So grab your cup of tea, get ready for another power-packed episode filled with your questions and with some practical advice, inspiring stories, valuable resources to help maximize your contributions and be able to make those decisions about both yourself and your kids. Is entrepreneurship a way to go? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. You know, that song, Taking Care of Business, is real significant in light of what we're going to be talking about today because it talks about somebody who left the regular path of work, went on their own, in control of their own time and income. I'll give you some of the lyrics here as we go on a little bit more. So here's the setup for today's episode. A listener asked, you know, if I was your child, how would you teach or encourage me to be an entrepreneur without merely telling me you just got to do it? All right, what about this? Why are profits better than wages? What are three reasons people never act in their dreams to achieve the financial independence they desire? And then this, Dan, is there a game I can play with my kids to teach them about business? And then I'm going to end today with a letter from a dad that's going to rip your heart out with the regrets of what he taught his son. Okay, so our quotation today comes from Proverbs, out of the Bible, Proverbs 22, 6, a verse most of you will recognize immediately, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, how often has that induced guilt in parents who have tried to mold their children into their own preconceived ideas of what success should be? You know, train up a child in the way he should go. So what does that mean? You know, but perhaps there's a broader message in that verse. The Hebrew form used for the phrase in the way he should go actually means according to his way. It refers to the child's particular bent, that special way of doing something. The Amplified Bible expands on that a little bit. It says, train up a child in the way he should go and in keeping with his individual gift or bent. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's a lot different than the way we often use that 
purse as a big club. Children don't arrive as empty buckets waiting to be filled or as lumps of clay ready to be molded into what their parents desire them to be. I mean, Joanne and I enjoyed observing our three very unique children when they were small, recognizing their individual personalities, their interests, their learning styles. We laughed and experimented with ways to identify their bent, their skills, what motivated them, what frightened them, what opened the door to their greatest gifts. Well, today as adults, they have not departed from those areas of talent and joy we recognized as they were children. Okay, well, I'm going to, we'll go from that, but that certainly is a framework for what we're going to talk about here. So our resource today is our entrepreneur readiness quiz. Do you have what it takes to be an entrepreneur? I've used this before. Some of you may have done it, but it's it's free. You just jump on there. It's ask like 18 questions just to kind of ask yourself these questions. The more yeses you have, the more likely it is, yes, that you would thrive as an entrepreneur. So go to 48days.com slash entrepreneur. Again, that's just 48days.com slash entrepreneur to check that out. Okay, so here's the question. It comes from Justin, longtime listener. He says, I haven't written you in a while. Today, my question is this. If I was your child, how would you teach or encourage me to be an entrepreneur without merely telling me you just got to do it? Okay, I want to start with a story. Several years ago now, Joanne and I were out on a Sunday evening. We stopped in to see a young friend of ours who is really doing a great job of making a new life after prison. But as we pulled into the housing area, my car was immediately surrounded by a small group of kids. Now, I was driving a black Corvette that I had at the time. It was a cool car, no doubt about it. And these kids just swarmed me. The first question I heard was, Mr., are you rich? So, you know, as I looked around and asked these bright-eyed kids what their dreams were, what they were going to do to be able to drive any kind of car they wanted, and without exception, it was to be in the NFL or the NBA. Now, here's what breaks my heart. The chances of that happening are very, very slim. But, you know, these little kids aren't the only ones who are mistaken about how to get to be millionaire in America. So, here's a list of how people accumulate wealth in America, 74% have their own businesses. So this is going to include the typical entrepreneurs, real estate agents, etc. You don't have to reinvent the wheel or patent something to be very successful. You can be creative with sidewalk construction or landscaping and build that into a business that can make you a millionaire. One of the sons of a member of my mastermind, he has six sons, one of his sons wanted to develop his own software instead of just being another computer guy sitting in a cubicle. So he left his job, worked on his own idea, and then last January, he sold that little business for $50 million. And we hear those stories over and over. I could spend all day just telling you those stories. Okay, let's go back to this. So 74% of people who accumulate wealth in America have their own business. 10% are senior executives. You know, people like the CEO of Amazon or Priceline. You know, in today's work environment, longevity and seniority are not necessarily going to be rewarded. Results are what get noticed. So these senior executive positions may be filled with a newcomer. 
But then if somebody can prove that they get the job done, if it's the new CEO of Pepsi or Home Depot or whatever, you know, they, they may be rewarded well in that. So that's 10%. 10% people who end up wealthy are doctors, lawyers, other professionals. You know, some of these people end up wealthy, but certainly not all. And many who feel the necessity of presenting a certain standard of living have high consumptive lifestyles and they never really accumulated any wealth at all. Even high income for services will never make one wealthy. It's only those who live on much less than they make and put some money to work for them beyond their income who go on to become wealthy. And then 5% are salespeople or consultants. I mean, this can be any industry, service, or product. There's little connection with academic degrees or licensure or certification. They're simply people who are very good at selling. Now get this. So we've got that. And if you're adding up, we've got it 99%. 74% cell phone businesses, 10% senior executive positions, 10% doctors, lawyers, and professionals, 5% salespeople and consultants. We're down to 1%. 1%? include all of those who play the stock market, inventors, show business, actresses and actors, songwriters, athletes, lottery winners. I mean, this is a pretty strange realization. The less than 1% category is what gets noticed and talked about. I mean, every little kid wants to be, you know, the next Tom Brady or the next Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga, but these are really rare examples of success. And they comprise less than 1% of how people become wealthy. Now, statistically, you know, any of these little kids I was talking to could go from the 1% category to the 74% category tomorrow by washing windows to save up $200 and then buying a lawnmower and starting the yard service. I mean, their real chances of financial success would be vastly greater than trying in these rare areas of success like sports, music, or movies. I had a lady come to me one time. I knew her from church. She had four kids. Her husband just left. Now, her skills, and she was desperate. Her skills would get her maybe, you know, that $15 or $18 an hour job. I suggested she go to Walmart, buy a plastic bucket and a squeegee, and then offered to wash windows up and down Nolensville Road in Nashville. She did exactly that. She found she could make 40 to $50 an hour. And she did that for four months before then starting her own professional cleaning service. So yeah, I did explain to those little kids what I do to earn money. But I don't think writing books and talking to people sounded very glamorous to them. But maybe I planted just a seed for someone there that it's possible to do well without being a sports star. So, should your kid be an entrepreneur? Now, if we look at traditional work models, I expand on these in my book, No More Dreaded Mondays, but I look at, you know, the, the work models we have. So, we've got a lot of things available. Traditional work just being one of those. We have traditional work, and then we have freelance work, oh, selling, consulting, franchising, you know, where you find something that's already been proven and you're kind of able to be in business for yourself but not by yourself is kind of their mantra. You could get a distributorship. You could license a product. You could purchase a business opportunity. It's not as structured as a franchise, but still something that's been done, been proven. You pay a one-time fee typically and have 
a setup for your own business. You could provide personal services. Of course, you can do writing, speaking, coaching. We go on. Those are all different models of work that we have today. So when we understand the different models, what's another issue that we ought to look at? Well, another section I've got in No More Dreaded Mondays is why profits are better than wages. Now, this is kind of a tough issue. Our culture teaches us to expect wages for our time. I mean, a person who makes $20 an hour, you know, wants 25. The attorney who makes $100 an hour wants to work his way up to 400 and so on. Whatever the level, though, we're talking about wages or linear income. So is your income linear or residual? Now, here's how you can tell. Just ask yourself this question. How many times do you get paid for every hour that you work? If you answered only once, then your income is linear. You're making wages. Salaries offer linear income. Doctors and dentists earn linear income. Linear income is very time dependent. Typically, when you don't show up for work or take a day off, your paycheck stops. Now, with residual income, where you're focused on profits rather than wages, you work hard once and it unleashes a steady flow of income for months or even years. You get paid over and over again for the same effort. And you, you hear me talk over and over again about that concept because it's so important. I mean, I, I see people, I continue to see people who have been let go by major companies who are angry that after 20 or 25 years of working for security, they're now left out in the cold. But you know, matter, no matter how wonderful your company is, if you're making a linear income, you're not secure. You only have the illusion of security. I mean, working as an employee with no connection to the profits you help bring in is not security. It's just the illusion of security. I mean, working for a company is fine, but you have to understand that doing so will never give you security. If you work for linear income and still want to create residual income in other ways, you can do that. I mean, you can have investments or be involved in real estate, inventions, writing, small business, internet marketing, visual arts, software development, network marketing. I mean, there's plenty of ways that offer residual income. So you can do both, and a lot of people are doing that, and I commend them on doing that. But something changes when you start working for profits rather than wages. I mean, I've seen, seen guys who, you know, been too tired to go to work, and then they become motivated to stay up all night, you know, placing, biz, you know, maybe, maybe putting baseball cards for sale on eBay or something like that. Or the woman who felt depressed and exhausted at week all week at work, spend 40 energetic hours on the weekend writing her first novel. I mean, I've seen a person's attitude, voice, and face change when he or she starts to embrace this new way of thinking. The possibility of profits is empowering and releases the deepest reservoirs of creativity and energy. Working for wages is limiting. The temptation is to do the very least to maintain the predictable and limited reward. Now, I've talked about Spending time with my grandkids. I mean, one of my little granddaughters, 10 years old, we were out by the swimming pool recently and I was talking to her. She was asking about the difference between linear and residual income. And I thought, oh my goodness, Juliet, if you understand this, it's going to put you for, so far ahead of your peers. It's going to be mind blowing. You know, what can you do? Can a, can a child, can a child who may have an entrepreneurial bent or just somebody who wants to create income, can even a child create residual income? Well, yes, they can. Uh, Clara, one of my granddaughters, wrote along with her grandma, my wife Joanne, 
a little book, What If It Were Possible, that was published by Morgan James Publisher. So she gets money from the direct sales, but also ongoing royalty income. Now think about that. She was eight years old when they wrote that. I mean, today she has designs on Redbubble. So Redbubble is a site. I mean, check it out. Now, you know, this is where I'm going to give you some sites here. If you are working with this idea, having your kids be entrepreneurs or you yourself wanting to be an entrepreneur, I mean, check some of these out. So this is redbubble.com, just like it sounds. These are designs by independent artists. So Clara does lots of art designs. She puts them up there and then people buy a clock with her design on it or a mug or a vase or a mouse pad or a t-shirt or a hat with her designs. So where she did the design one time, it's there as an option to put on any of those articles. And every time it's put on one of those, she creates income. That's that's one of those examples of residual income. Now, she's I've got, got her site up here. Now, all of my grandkids have their domains as, you know, so that so they can set up their own websites. So this is Clara Logsdon. Last name is L-O-G-S-D-O-N, claralogsdon.com. That's her site. And you'll see on there the vast array of things she has for sale. You can get a, a photo paper print. You can get a peacock feather charm. You can get a wire-wrapped feather. And, you know, that's uh, $53. Here's a little crocheted octopus for $25. Bigger octopus, 120 or, or bigger dragon, rather, $120. She'll do a, a custom pet portrait, just a quick sketch, for $30. It uh, goes on and on. Little jars, parrot earrings. Feather earrings, a little tiny bird nest and a trumpet vine seed pod for $10. You know, just she can put up anything that she has as an idea there. And people go there then because she's active online. People go there. Here's a sunflower bag for $45. I mean, the ideas just go on and on. It's beautifully done. Now, she's also just been commissioned to illustrate another children's book, having done What If It Were Possible? When she was eight years old, people see that. They'd like her to illustrate their children's book as well. So she's being paid $100 per illustration for this new book. She's completed about 10 of them already. Uh, They're really awesome. I'll have to share a link to the book when she's finished. There's probably 20 images in this book. Well, at $100 a piece, that's $2,000. So, you know, yeah, we want our children to understand. Now, let me go a little bit deeper in this in terms of how you don't have to teach your children to be entrepreneurs. Just give them options to get what they want, and they'll discover all these different models of work and figure it out. Now, my experience in growing up on a farm, wonderful experience. I had a little exposure to a lot of different things, a little bit of mechanics, um, you know, to plumbing, to electric, electricity, you know, to growing things, to raising animals selling crops, all that. Well, so when I was six years old, I went door to door selling Christmas cards. I remember it very, very well. You know, people would pay me 50% of what their order was going to be. And then I'd order the cards and then I'd deliver those and uh, make about 50% on what the total cost was. When I was 10 years old, I'd get up really early in the morning pick the remaining sweet corn beyond what my mom wanted for family use. I'd load that into a little trailer that I could pull behind our, our one little family, tra- our 
family tractor and go two miles up to the paved road. And I'd set up there, put my sign up and sell that sweet corn for 30 cents a dozen. And I just kept seeing ideas and it's never stopped. That's why I've, I've never had a traditional job. When I was 12 years old, I'd offer to clean the neighbor's cars by removing the tar and dirt and wax for them. You know, I charged $25 for that. And this is a lot of years ago. You know, I had buddies that were working for a dollar and 30 cents an hour and I'd get 25 bucks because I'd offer to do a project working for profits rather than wages all through college. I painted houses uh, on my own time. I'd bid the entire job, then I'd do it on my own time and at my own speed. No one had to watch to make sure I was working without taking breaks. It's a different kind of model. In graduate school, I would buy cars from yard sales, repo sales, the dealers. I'd clean them up and then sell them to college kids. I knew how easy it was to sell cars in a particular price range. And really, back then, that price range was $2,500 to $3,500. And so I'd buy cars for $800, $1,000, check them out mechanically, clean them up, boom. They needed a paint job, but get that done. There were easy, easy, inexpensive paint jobs back then for cars, but that's what I did. I never looked for a job. I always put my college, graduate school courses first, my studies there first, but then I would do things on the side in my own time and convenience to generate money that we needed to live on. So we have three children. How did we teach them? Well, when my oldest son, Kevin, was 10 years old, BMX exploded under the scene. Now, that was bicycle motocross racing. You know, he was a good rider, and we were used to finding old bikes for $20 or $30, fixing them up. But then he saw a brand new red line bicycle in the window of our local bicycle shop. It was $400. And he came home all excited about it. Dad, I want to go get that bike. My response was, man, that's awesome, Kevin. Wow, that's a beauty. How are you going to get it? And of course, first response as a 10-year-old is, well, we'll go down and you, you know, pay for it and I'll bring it home. And I said, well, I want you to have the bike, but that's not how it works in our house. What are we going to do? I'll help you do something and see if you can't get the money for that. So I, I bought a motorcycle from one of my car dealer friends. I paid $350 for it, just a standard, you know, Honda motorcycle. But we worked on that motorcycle. It had been kind of abused. We worked on that motorcycle every day for six weeks. That's a long time for a 10-year-old. We worked on it every day for six weeks. We sanded, we painted, we got some things re-chromed. We worked on that. Then we put it out in our front yard with a for sale sign on it. The very first guy who stopped bought it. I took out every penny I spent. I took out that original $350. Then every penny that I'd kept track of all the repairs, took all that out. What was left was $410. I said, Kevin, you have $410. What do you want to do with that? I want to go get that bike. And we did. But guess what his attitude about having that bike was? Now that he had skin in the game, he understood what it took to get a nice bike like that. And while the neighbor kid's bike, who was comparable to this one, would lay out in the front yard in the rain and over the weekend, not Kevin's bike, he kept it not in the garage. He kept it in his bedroom. It was immaculate. He learned how to take care of it because he worked hard to get it. He didn't want anything to destroy what he had worked so hard to get. Now, I didn't force him to be an entrepreneur. I just helped him find a way to get what he wanted. When Kevin was 14 years old, we sent him to a window tinting 
training in Atlanta. He then launched a very profitable business. I had an auto accessories business, so it, it blended in really well with customers that I already had. But he started tinting windows, doing a lot of exotic cars, doing Mercedes and Jags, Volvos, cars like that. But that funded his bicycle racing, travel and expenses, because he was easily making five to $600 a week, working two or three evenings after school as a high school sophomore. When our younger son, Jared, was 14, he was looking for summer income generator. Well, what we do with our kids is, what is it you can do that's unique, that stands out? That's not the same thing everybody else is doing. So we lived in a neighborhood that had 438 houses in it. Well, a lot of kids were mowing yards or throwing newspapers. Jared, what can you do that's different? Well, his older brother was a bicycle racer. Jared wasn't as interested in racing, but he was really good at bicycle mechanics. So we put together one little flyer, and it announced this week's special flat repair on your bicycle. Flat repair, $5. All we did is put that out one time. He would provide free pickup and delivery, which is a big thing, you know, for moms and dads not to have to put the car, the bike in the, the trunk of the car, hope to not scratch the paint, and then remember when they need to go pick it up again. No, Jared provided free pickup and delivery. Well, guess what else is true of about 98% of bicycles that have a flat tire? They need other repairs as well. He'd fix the flat for $5 and he'd call them up and said, you know, I've got a special to really clean this up, you know, to adjust adjust the derailers, you know, oil the chains, get it all ready for you. You know, it's $25 for that. And people would say, well, sure, go ahead and do that. So it set him up to do a very profitable job in a niche where nobody else in the neighborhood was doing that. He was the guy. And it didn't require mom or dad to drive him to his job. When our daughter Ashley was in high school, she wanted her own income. We looked for, you know, again, what can you do that is unique? Now, this is not the same as every other high school girl offering babysitting services. She drew on her love of cooking and having been taught by her Amish grandmother cooking skills, she started offering amazing apple pies, these Amish apple pies, $25 each. I mean, people would contract six months in advance for special occasions to have her pies. All three of our children now head up their own businesses. None was forced to go that direction. We just wanted them to know their options and then choose. How are you teaching your children business principles? How are they providing a product or service that people want? How are they experiencing uh, the idea of accepting responsibility, controlling costs, making a profit? How can they do that? You know, this, knowing these things, having these skills are going to give them insulation from being fired, laid off, or downsized. You know, I mentioned taking care of business. There, there's so many songs that address this, taking care of business by, that I use in my opening, the old Bachman Turner Overdrive song. You get up every morning from your alarm clock's warning, take the 815 into the city. There's a whistle up above, people pushing, people shoving, and the girls who try to look pretty. And if your train's on time, you get to work by nine and start your slaving job to get your pay. If you ever get annoyed, look at me. I'm self-employed. I love to work at nothing all day. I'll be taking care of business, taking care of business, and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's a lot of reason why I have that song there, and I've had it for a long time. Yeah, remember the Beatles song, Watching the Wheels? It was John Lennon's song. People say I'm crazy, doing what I'm doing. Well, they give me all kinds of warnings to save me from ruin. When I say I'm okay, well, they look at me kind of strange. Surely you're not happy. You no longer play the game. 
People say, I'm lazy, dreaming my life away. Well, they give me all kinds of advice designed to enlighten me. When I tell them I'm doing fine, watching shadows on the wall, don't you miss the big time, boy, you're no longer on the ball. Well, other songs, golly, songs like, um, golly, who was it? Did uh, Teach Your Children, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Teach Your Children. Wow, there's so many out there. Well, hey, having fun here talking about this. We've got more stories. I've got a, a more examples, more sites for you that I want to give you. But uh, just a reminder here, you're listening to Real Life Questions. Today we're dealing with kid entrepreneurs. If you got a question or a comment on this or a suggestion or resource, just go to 48days.com slash askdan to leave that there. Again, that's 48days.com slash askdan. So here's a quick message from our sponsors, then I'll be back with some more helpful websites for you and your kids. All right, let's look at a couple of websites here. I want to give you a couple resources here, and we'll wrap this up shortly. One of the websites is teachingkidsbusiness.com. Just a lot of easy ways there. We have to be intentional about this, though, and it's a disservice to our kids if we aren't teaching them the options for work today. If we just ignore that, let them go to school, figure when they get out of high school, they'll go to Jebba McDonald's or Taco Bell. That's a pretty uh, weak start to understanding what the workplace is, is about and what the possibilities are today. You can also go to Kidpreneurs. Kidpreneurs.org is one. You know, one of the traditional ways for kids to learn about business is to have a lemonade stand. I mean, the lemonade stand is still that American classic for that first business experience. If you go to LemonadeDay.org, you'll see there kids can get involved. There's some real interesting ways they can get involved to learn the basics of business. Again, that's LemonadeDay.org. Now, I'm an advisor for a program out of Indiana. Um, it's called CEO. It's Creating Entrepreneurial Opportunities. But if you go to MidlandInstitute.com, you can see how that is set up. Now, with that, we have local business community partners um, who do the teaching. The kids are high school kids. They commit to this program. It's a one-year program. And in doing this, they have to create an individual business and a group business where they learn teamwork, problem solving, self-motivation, responsibility, communication, higher order thinking. Those are the kind of things they're going to that to learn in this program. So I love being part of that. Love the fact that we are seeing these kids, I mean, seeing kids come out of really tough backgrounds who learn these skills and go on to be amazingly successful and come back to do things in their community. I mean, up in um, Effingham, Illinois, there's a, a young guy who went through the program. Now he's purchased several buildings in the old kind of neglected downtown area and has refurbished them to be Airbnbs, to be co-working spaces, some beautifully done things by one of the kids who went through that program. All right, hey, there, there's typically three reasons people never act on their dreams to achieve the financial independence they desire. Three reasons. The number one is fear of failure. I mean, there's, there's nothing more crippling than fear of failure. I'm going through right now the strangest secret, listening to that every day is, about 650 of us are. But uh, one of the things that they were reminded of is how frequently the Bible talks about fear. I mean, wow, it's the, the biggest command, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Almost every major character in the Bible was told at some point, 
don't be afraid. Well, it, that's a crippling thing. It holds us back. It holds us back from being our best selves. Number two is lack of knowledge, or at least perceived lack of knowledge. Now, creative, non-traditional, innovative skills you know, are not just things you stumble onto. You have to learn how to invest, learn how to deal in real estate, learn how to evaluate business opportunities, or maybe how to manage employees. But these are all things that can be learned, and they should never prevent you from exploring new options for a better life. And then the third reason people don't act in their dreams, dreams is that perceived lack of money. I stress perceived because money's not what's holding them back. People think they don't have enough money to take the first steps toward new kinds of work, but the problem usually comes back to fear of failure or lack of knowledge. I mean, I get you know eight to 10 requests a week from people wanting to know where to find startup money for new ventures. And yes, you know, capital is difficult to get, especially for the kind of businesses that a lot of people are starting today that use service information or technology. There's nothing, nothing real tangible there. So it's hard to get investment money and certainly impossible to get banking money. Does that mean it's impossible to launch a great idea without startup capital? Absolutely not. I mean, if you look at the data on this, 26 26% of business startups right now don't require any capital at all. Zero. 34% needed less than $5,000. Then it goes up from there. But you know, I mean, we're talking about you know, 69% of all new businesses need less than $10,000 to get started. But we still have, you know, 70% of the people on the street say they'd like to start their own business, but they don't. It's not because you don't have money I've started businesses with $100. You know, one of the businesses I've got going right now that's extremely profitable, I started with $1,000 just to have some seed money in there. And after 30 days, I took my $1,000 back out again. And it's grown exponentially. I mean, money is not the limiting thing. But again, those three reasons are fear of failure, lack of money, and lack of knowledge. Those are the things, but you can overcome all of those and move forward with confidence. Now, one of the things that I recommend that you do is get the game cash flow. Cash flow, yeah, created by you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, author Robert Kiyosaki. But this is an investing game. And oh my gosh, is it fun to play with kids? I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you want to learn how to ride a bike or, you know, reading a book or listening to a lecture isn't going to help a whole lot. Yeah, you can get some high-level theory about balance and stability and all that, but really you need to jump on a bicycle. The best way to learn how to ride a bike is go outside, hop on a bike, and start to pedal. Well, investing or understanding new business opportunities works the same way. And playing the game gives our kids and us opportunities to experiment. Now, it's not using real money, but it's pretty stinking close. And it's it's so much different than Monopoly. You may think, well, that's kind of the same. Eh, that's kind of a, I, it's not as realistic. In cash flow, you really look at, you may have great income as a heart surgeon, but if your expenses are high, it keeps you from ever getting out of the rat race. It keeps you from ever starting being able to go into those things that are going to really increase your income exponentially. Now, you know, for myself, I mean, I, I've always managed to create income, 
But it's not my daily income that's created wealth. It's by being involved in other kinds of things that have the potential to grow exponentially. Business, real estate, and so on. So get the game cash flow. If one, of the, one of the things, that, one of an outcome of that is my granddaughter, Clara, who is now 16, she's not going to spend her hard-earned money on a car, which she sees as a depreciating asset. Instead, she's negotiating to purchase her first rental house. That's a real mind shift from what most teenagers are thinking about. Yeah, she's looking at investments that are going to create ongoing residual income and appreciate, not in just getting something frivolous because she went to the mall and bought a new handbag. Well, let me end with this. This has been some time ago, and I wrote about this in one of my books, but I received an email with a subject line that read, last night I condemned my son to a slow and painful death. Now, here are the highlights of this dad's letter. My son, age 17, has a dream to be a writer. He wants to write novels and adventure tales. He actually has put his first book on Amazon. He has over, uh, and he's over 50,000 words into his new novel. He's been developing these stories since he was five or six years old. While other kids want to play video games or surf the internet, he's writing, drawing maps of the worlds he creates and developing new languages. So how did I condemn him to a slow death? His mother and I want him to be able to pay the bills, to have a steady job, to have something to fall back on. And I am ripped in half. As a parent, I want to make sure that he has a roof over his head and food to eat. Honestly, our son doesn't care about that at all. He could live in a shack on white bread and peanut butter and be perfectly content. As a Dan Miller listener, I want him to follow his dream and passion, even if, me, if it means struggling through lean years to accomplish his success. If you were in our shoes, what would you do? I don't want him to be stuck in a cubic cubicle whack-a-mole office or a 10 by 10 cell of a government job doing time like I am, wishing I was doing something else, but knowing I can't until my release for good behavior comes with jubilee and tears of joy. Dan, if I condemn my son, I'll have to stop listening to you because inside me, I'll know that I'm a hypocrite. Now there's more to the letter, but I'm going to stop there. Now I wrote back to this dad, oh my, how I feel both your love and the pain you have in this note. And yes, that's a realistic tension between wanting to support his dreams and wanting him to be able to pay his own bills. I mean, I often talk about the three-legged stool being that blend of passion, talent, and money. If any of those three legs are missing, the stool will fall over. If the passion and talent are not creating money, then the work is just a hobby and something must be added to complete the picture. But it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. I go through, you know, T.S. Eliot was a British essayist, publisher, playwright. At age 29, he got a real job. He took a job at Lloyd's Bank in London, where he worked for the next eight years. Two years after he started there, he wrote his mother, I'm now earning two pounds, 10 shillings a week for sitting in an office from 9.15 to 5 with an hour for lunch. Tea served in the office. So the pressure to pay the rent and buy groceries was gone. He used his lunch hour to discuss literary project with friends. And then in the evening, he had leisure time to work on his poetry and his fame began to grow. We have a lot of stories like that. You can do both. It's, a, it's to create those and solutions, not either or. Now here's a piece though 
from The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. He says, we come into this world with a specific personal destiny. We have a job to do, a calling to enact, a self to become. Our job in this lifetime is not to shape ourselves into some ideal we imagine we ought to be, but to find out who we already are and become it. If you are meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your children. You hurt me. You hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter further along its path back to God. Creative work is not selfish. It's not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. Again, that's just a short segment, the ended segment from The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. So at 17, yeah, your son can enjoy the experiment of writing, encourage his creativity and passion. Maybe he'll be the next John Grisham or Stephen King or Maya Angelou. And if in a couple of years he can't pay the bills, you can help him explore multiple ways to keep a roof over his head and continue to nurture and develop the writing that he loves. All right, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna bring it to a close right there. Well, let's just kind of do a summary here. Summary of this idea. Should your children be entrepreneurs? Should you train, teach, encourage, force them to be entrepreneurs or to not be? Well, number one in my summary, you don't need to force your child into any particular kind of work model. Just make sure they understand the options. They'll choose what works best for them. Number two, understand the best options for getting wealthy. Number three, make sure you understand the difference between wages and profits. Number four, play cash flow with your children. And number five, take the entrepreneur readiness quiz that we've got for you. Do you have what it takes to be an entrepreneur? That's at 48days.com slash entrepreneur. Well, my goodness. Again, our verse for today, our quotation was, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. But understand what that means. Train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. What is their natural motivation? What are their personality? Help them develop that, be excellent in that. That's what's going to give them a solid foundation. Well, hey, this has been a blast for me. I, I have so much more. I thought about bringing my kids in for this conversation or my wife in. You know, they could add their their take. Uh, that would turn into... Rather than 45 minutes, it turned into three hours very quickly. So I just kind of, as a dad, kind of snapshot some of the things that we've been through, some of the things that we've experienced in helping our kids explore their best options. And I hope it's been helpful for you. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in those questions. Remember, if I use your question, I'll send you an autographed book, maybe some other surprise gifts. Just go to 48days.com slash askdan for that. But thanks for being the kind of person who is open to growing and learning, no matter what your age. If you're eight years old or 88, you can learn and grow in new ways. So share this episode with a couple of your friends who may be dealing with the same kind of issues. They'll thank you for it. Become known as that person who shares positivity. Somebody offers hope and encouragement to others. So if you give somebody a book or recommend somebody like this podcast to somebody else that needs it, It'll elevate your credibility and value in their eyes. Be that kind of person. And stay committed to your belief that we can, without a shadow of a doubt, find or create work and a life 
that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.